A couple episodes ago, I chatted with Jessica Spears from Three Rivers Homestead about how you can put your dehydrator to work around the homestead. And it's a great alternative if you're not ready to can quite yet, maybe you're not ready to do fermentation, or you don't have a lot of freezer space. Dehydrating is a wonderful option. But even though I've owned a dehydrator for a long, long time, there's a whole aspect of dehydrating that I have never even realized existed until now. So today we are going to be talking about how to make powders out of your fruits and vegetables. And when I first heard of this, I was kind of perplexed. I was like, why would you do that? What is the purpose? But the more I have learned about this, I'm intrigued. And this is an incredible way to use a dehydrator, especially if you're short on pantry space. I am thrilled to be joined by Darcy Baldwin, a self-described geek who started dehydrating about 10 years ago when she needed to find ways to save money in her family's budget and stop wasting food. It has been a hobby that has snowballed into a blog, which is called The Purposeful Pantry, and her YouTube channel, and also a book with another on the way. She also loves all things geek, from Narnia to astronomy to British mysteries, and Darcy gave so much good info in this interview. Grab your pen and paper, and let's talk about how to dehydrate fruit and vegetable powders. You're listening to the Old Fashioned On Purpose podcast, where ambitious people master the art of returning to their roots. Have you found yourself disenchanted with society or wishing you could opt out of the rat race? Perhaps you're craving a life that's meaningful and tangible, a life where you can create and produce instead of merely consume. I'm Jill Winger, best-selling author and longtime homesteader. Over the last 10 years, I've helped thousands of families create more connection, grow amazing organic food, and find the ultimate fulfillment through an old-fashioned lifestyle. And I can do the same for you. Now, on to our episode. Hey, Darcy, welcome to the podcast. Thanks. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Yeah. So I've been asking this question of a lot of the guests this season um, around their topic. In the grand scheme of your personal food preservation, about how much would you say is dehydrated food versus other methods? Just probably, probably 80% right now. Wow. Um, Yeah, I do a lot of it. I mean, I freeze things, but I only have so much freezer space. Um, I'm still a new canner, so I haven't been doing a lot of canning. So I'm still new enough that I'm not... um, I'm not able to put all my security into the canning stuff yet. So sure. I've got some going, but I'm not fully into that. I'm, I think that it will probably level off into about 50-50 once I'm more versed in canning enough that I can say, okay, now I feel safe. I've got it down. I'm doing all the things. So that will happen later. But right now, probably, yeah, I would say a good chunk is dehydrated. Yeah. Dehydrating is good for that. I mean, there's a lot less of the safety concerns. So I feel like it's really good if you're new, you know, our modern culture doesn't food preservation is a weird concept for us modern folks. Yeah. Um, and if you're new, it feels foreign. It can feel scary. It can feel dangerous living on the edge of dehydrating is a great segue into all the weird things. Then you can get into fermentation and canning meat and all that stuff. But yeah, yeah, that's good. Yeah. Um, As long as you stay away from, you know, the few things that are like, yeah, probably don't touch that. I mean, it's, 90% 90% of what you eat on a daily basis can be dehydrated in some form. Even if you dehydrate it and freeze it, like for meats, you still can keep, a, you're putting it in a smaller space. You're making it more available later. And even if the freezer goes out, that dehydrated stuff can still go back in your shelf for a little while until such time that you need, you know, that you get a freezer again, as opposed to raw meat that you can't do that with. So yeah. Right. So you said something about the things that you absolutely should stay away from. What would those be in the world of dehydrating? Well, if you, there's the the idea of sticking by the National Center for Home Food Preservation Safety things versus what you want to do in your home. And uh, my friend Lisa uh, Sutton um, has this great saying that it's, it's your home, your choice, your responsibility. So I love sticking to that. So uh, the things that you should stay away from are proteins, dairy. I mean, those are the big things because your dehydrator doesn't work on it. It's a cyclical heater. So it doesn't stay at a constant temperature of like, if you're trying to do meat, it doesn't stay at 165 the entire time, which is why it's always recommended that if you're dehydrating something that you throw into the, the oven at the end, 
to blast it like for t- at 250 for about 15 minutes to make sure you kill off whatever bacteria is there. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you're doing things like dairy, you're keeping those dairy products at a temperature that may not be safe for the entire time that you're doing it so that you run a risk of airborne bacteria, molds, whatever in there in a medium that should be kept at a pretty safe temperature all the time. So the real suggestion of doing, uh, you can do dairy, but you should probably not do dairy. I mean, that's just like the, the thing. Um, I refer to your dehydrating eggs post all the time. And I've got it as part of my reference when I uh, when somebody asks me to dehydrate eggs, um, I say you can, but, and then if you really wanna go research it, then then Jill's already done this kind of research to show you which one works better. So I haven't even bothered to do it yet for, for recording because you've already got something out there that I can say, this is where she shows you the difference between the two. Um, I don't recommend doing raw eggs because of the yeah. safety issue. Always yeah. do them cooked, but that way you can see the difference in how it works out. So, um, so especially with dairy and proteins, because proteins uh, like jerky is fine because jerky is tested and they've come up with ways to say this is the better way to do it. But you really shouldn't think about doing chunks of meat uh, because chunks of meat are so dense, you can't really get it dry all the way. All the way. I mean, there's just those kind of things endemic to keeping meat out at temperatures that you can't keep it safe. So Sure. That makes sense. I was going to ask you about the jerky because I'm like, oh no, I actually have jerky in the dehydrator right this right moment. now. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, but I figured it had to been had to be okay because it's so common. Oh yeah, and and because if you're you're curing it, if you're using curing salts in it and stuff, if you happen to use that kind of recipe, you're curing meat. It's safe. If you're just putting jerky in there uh, without curing salts, you're not doing the curing. You can still do it fine. Uh, it's recommended to blast at the end if you want, or if you're doing chicken to cook it ahead of time before you put it in. Uh, and then it's it's recommended to keep it in the freezer for long-term storage because that way you don't worry about mold as meat, if it's not cured, can tend to mold or go bad over time on the shelf. Uh, but you know, there's just those things that if you know those things going into it, then you're good. You, you just know how to deal with it as you want to deal with it. Okay. And I, I just have to tell you, I tried the egg thing again this spring because I uh-huh. had had that blog post that you referenced. Uh-huh. Um, it was a long time ago and I was like a baby homesteader when I made it. So I'm like, maybe I could do this better. Maybe the results will be better. And I tried mm-hmm. it again and nope. It and was they weren't. Yeah. So horrible. <laughs> you did a really good job your horrible. first time out for that. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, not recommended. I mean, yeah. I know they do. That. I was like, yeah, guys, I know there's egg powder at the survival food stores. This is not how you get that. It's not not the same. <laughs> um, but yeah, so that brings me to, cause I, you know, egg powder is kind of the topic of really why I'm excited to have you on. Well, multiple reasons, but one of the main ones is that I feel like you are expert level in the area of dehydration that I have never even touched. I didn't even know was a thing. And that is powders, making powders in your dehydrator. Can you kind of give like an entry or an intro rather to those who are like, what, what did you just say? Like, (laughs) what is this whole new world that you are playing in? Okay. Well, I'll start it out by saying that I started experimenting it, experimenting with it when my, uh, when my sons are very young, I have a super taster, super smeller. He is, uh, he smells all the things and he has high sensitivity to texture. uh, And he's been that way since he was a baby. So feeding him has always been kind of problematic. So in the beginning, we started just, I'd heard about being able to do this. And it was like, well, I don't know how that works. And so I started experimenting. So um, we did a thing where he will not eat anything green if he can possibly help it ever. He just won't eat it. So what I do is I powder greens and then my powder goes into anything that I cook. So any savory dish. So it goes into eggs, it goes into meatloaf, it goes into whatever casserole I'm making. It goes into everything. It goes into smoothies and it even goes into brownies and pancakes. Uh, And so that way I can get some greens into him without forcing him to eat a green and making it a problem. Now, now that he's older, uh, it's different, but when he was younger, it was so helpful just to start adding those things in to help. Uh, But on a day-to-day basis, people already eat powders. And when you do onion powder, you're doing garlic powder, you're doing herbs from a jar that you bought from the grocery store. That's, that may not be powder, but it's still a version of that. Every spice that you have is powder. Um, So it's not, it's not so foreign. It's just learning that there are things that you can powder and use that are different than the typical ones that you get on a day-to-day basis. So I powder 
everything. I mean, it's like if I can dehydrate it, almost everything can be powdered and used in new ways so that you're not just stuck with putting something in a soup, uh, in a whole form. Yeah. You can make, uh, you know, you can make uh, pasta dough. You can flavor it with spinach or tomato or whatever else kind of powder that you want to do to give it color and to give it more nutrition and give it another flavor. Um, you can integrate any kind of powder into any meal that you're doing just to add extra nutrition. But I don't know how much people would want to do, but you can actually make little vitamin capsules out of powder to take them internally instead of just, you know, putting them in food. My husband likes doing our green powder capsules because he can just pop, you know, pop those daily and say, you know, I've got a little bit of extra. They're not good enough to replace your nutrition. I mean, you can't just take those sure. and say, ever eating a vegetable again, but they're always like just this little extra supplement, you know? So, um, we do all sorts of things with them all the time. Yeah. It's, it's fascinating. So, okay. So you do the greens. What are the yes. other like fruits and vegetables that you really are your, your main powder? The main ones. Okay. So we do mushroom powder. Uh, mushroom powder is, is amazing. It's like, uh, an umami flavor that you can add to all your savory dishes. So, um, and because I don't like rehydrated, dehydrated mushrooms. I don't like when you, I don't like the, the kind of rubbery texture they get. So, but I love the flavor of dried mushrooms. So I can eat them like they are as a snack or I powder them. And then just like with the, with the greens, we add them to savory dishes all the time. I don't put them in our brownies and I don't put them in pancakes. <laughs> uh, but I do put mushroom powder in just about everything that I can fit it into that it makes sense. And so it gives you mushroom flavor without the texture that people often are put off by. Mm -hmm. um, and then even if it's not, like if you don't use a ton, it still gives this deeper, satisfying meat flavor. I don't know how to explain. That's what umami is. It's just like this kind of meat flavor um, that uh, that vegans can use to help kind of boost that that flavor profile of foods that you might not normally get. Um, I use a generic vegetable powder all the time because that, those are my two, those are my three big ones. It's vegetable, greens, and mushrooms. So vegetable powders are made from all vegetables thrown in together, powdered up, and it has a pretty generic flavor. There's no particular vegetable that stands out as long as you keep the ratio good. So if you put uh, a lot of broccoli in it, it's probably going to start tasting like broccoli because broccoli is such a strong flavor. Mm -hmm. So as long as you keep a ratio that's good, there's no particular like magical formula. It's just like, don't overdo it with a strong vegetable. Um, and that can go in everything just like greens do. So it's a way for me to add a ton of extra flavor. No, try that again. A ton of extra nutrition into things without forcing the super taster uh, to yes. actually eat things that he just really can't handle the texture of. Um, and it's just, even if we're eating a ton of vegetables, it's a way to add more, but, you know, it's just, you just keep adding nutrition to it. Um, and as far as fruit powder goes, um, I stay away from heavy sugar fruits like cherries. Um, cherries don't really powder very well because there's just so much sugar inherent in a cherry, uh, that trying to powder it, it tends to just clump so much that I don't bother with it, but we do, you know, lemons and limes and, and those work really well. Um, I do strawberry powder and blueberry powder uh, are my two favorites. Then I do raspberry and blackberry because I don't like dehydrated raspberries and blackberries and dewberries. I don't like the texture of them because they can become uh, too much like paper. Mm -hmm. So I find they're better freeze-dried to have them as a snack on their own or to, to put into a meal. But I, I will stock up when they go on sale in the summer because I don't grow my own. We can't grow them here. Sure. Uh, and so, well, we can, but we don't. Um, we don't have a yard space big enough to do, to dedicate to those. So I will go stock up when they go on sale in the summer and then dry them. And then we use them as powder. So, uh, and then they go in yogurt, oatmeal, um, and pancakes, uh, and pancake syrup. And, um, I do Rice Krispies treats and flavor those with powders so that we can get strawberry flavor or blueberry flavor or, you know, whatever flavors that we want. Um, and I can have that all year. So we get kind of fresh tasting strawberry powder in the winter and have, or in the, in, we can do pumpkin version of that too in the fall uh, to have our crispy treats with pumpkin powder. So. so that would just be like pumpkin cubes or pumpkin puree. I do puree. I like, I bake it, puree it, have a leather, then powder the leather and then keep it powder and then keep it powdered that way. And I mean, you can make tea from pumpkin. I mean, I'm not tea. Why am I saying that? Like pumpkin lattes. 
that people love so okay. much. You can do that okay. with pumpkin powder yeah. and do it yourself. Else, so. I bet that's a good thicker. Is it a thickener kind of? You could like for a soup, yeah, and you could yeah. just make soup from it. I mean, you can. Okay. The cool thing about it um, is, like, I don't have a garden big enough to grow a ton of stuff, and I'm not. I, I'm not a natural born gardener. I have a. Uh, I wouldn't say I have a black thumb but I have a pretty brown thumb. Mm-hmm. And uh, this year, particularly, you know, we had these, this big garden ready to go and then life hit and I couldn't be here for it. And so it died. So it was like all these big plans of all the things that I wanted to grow this year are uh, kind of went down the tubes for the spring garden. Um, so I do still stock up on grocery products because that's what I have to do to make sure we have enough. And so um, the cool thing about doing that is that you can make those powders um, that you would normally like, instead of having a ton of, because I love pumpkin so much, I normally keep a ton of pumpkin, canned pumpkin on the shelf. So I can actually powder that, dry it, powder it, and keep it in one jar compared to 14, 15 cans in a space. Then I can turn around and make puree again when I'm ready for it. Um, And it just takes up less space. But if you have a ton of pumpkins that you're trying to harvest and you don't have space for all of them, and even if you can it, uh, you still have all those jars to keep up. So pureeing them makes a smaller um, storage space that you have to keep. Uh, you dry it, you powder it. And then when you're ready to make pumpkin pies in the fall, um, if you're ready to make pumpkin bread all through the year, you can turn around and just rehydrate that powder into puree. And it's the same as if it was fresh puree. Well, so the texture is like similar. You wouldn't like- It's so notice. similar, okay. right. And then you can even thin it out or uh, thicken it as you want. So you can make pumpkin soup from your dehydrated pumpkin top. Okay. I am just, my mind is blown. I don't know why, <laughs> how did I miss this? Like, no one told me this. Come on guys. <laughs> but like, so think about too, like if you're making tomatoes and you're canning tomatoes and you have all that skin left over, yeah. what do you do with the skin? Chickens. 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 Okay. Have you ever <laughs> yeah. made, you do make your own paste? I have not made paste. I've made sauce, but I've been a little bit put off by like the, where they're like, you have to cook it down for 18 hours or whatever. And I'm like, eh. Now you don't so. have to do, it probably doesn't take that long. You could do a quicker version, but, okay. but if you, then, then you have to put that paste in the freezer. Cause you really can't, can you yes. can paste? You is can't paste you is can, thick. Or it's pretty so. thick. Yeah, it's pretty thick. So I can't remember if you can can paste, but you can freeze it. But instead of having it in your freezer, you throw it in the dehydrator, just let it dry. You powder it. You have tomato powder that turns around and forms paste when you thicken it back up so that you've got it there for all the time. So you can make pizza sauce from it. You can add it. You can make your spaghetti sauce from it. You just have so much you can do uh, with that. And that makes a really great thickener too for students and stuff. Would I, with the paste, would, could I do the same thing from like just dehydrating, like just taking regular tomatoes, blending them up and then putting that on a tray yes. and dehydrating it? You wouldn't mm-hmm. have to like cook it down first necessarily. Mm-mm. Mm-mm. Okay. It just wouldn't be the same. Paste is basically just sauce mm-hmm. rendered down to a thicker thing. Yes. I mean, commercially, that's how they do it. Yeah. Um, so yeah, you could just do that with your tomato sauce, dehydrate it. You could, uh, when you're rehydrating it and adding the water to it, you could just make it a little thicker. So it's more like paste. So you still have that yeah. same, that same effect, but so many people just toss out tomato skins because they don't know what to do with them after they pan. It's like, yeah. no, you have this other thing that you can do as well. So you would literally just dehydrate the skins. Could you, you do would, you would puree them? Yeah. Just you would puree, puree, puree it all it. and okay. then just dry it. Yeah. It doesn't, it doesn't turn bitter in yeah. the same way that if you're putting those seeds into tomato sauce in a can. Okay. And see, I, so I do, I have one of the food mills, you know, mm-hmm. the Victoro or whatever. And mm-hmm. so we'll get these big bowls of the skins and all this stuff. Mm-hmm. So that would be fabulous. Yes. But you have chickens that and that's a great way to use it. I and mean, it's not wasting it, sure. but if sure. you don't have chickens, that's the way that you can use it. Yeah. You know, I love Darcy that you are, that you're saying, you know, I don't have a monster garden. I don't mm-hmm. have a 16 acre homestead, but you're still making this work. I think the people need to hear that. Um, that you're using grocery store stuff on sale and you're still stocking up and preserving. I feel like that's incredibly inspiring because there's too many people who are waiting for the perfect homestead to start. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, you don't have to wait. You can do it right now. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we have a probably less than a quarter acre. I mean, we have a tiny little plot of land in a, um, in a city that the, we're in the middle of a suburb that didn't give land. They didn't look at land as being important. You just wanted a house. Um, And so we have a very small yard that is dedicated to a shed, a fire pit, you know, the garden, the apple trees. Um, and, uh, and so there, and we have garden space 
but it's just, it's right now, it's not enough to sustain us. It's enough to supplement, but it's not enough to sustain. So I shop those sales at the grocery store hard, uh, yeah. especially in the summer yeah. when all the produce is on sale. And I'm blessed that I have a grocery store that does a lot of clearance produce. Mm-hmm. So I, if, you know, if I'm on my game, uh, especially now that we can get back into the grocery store so easily and food is readily available again, uh, I'm, try to get in there as often as I can to make sure I'm, you know, when they put those limes from, you know, that, that they're ready to get out, I go grab a bag and I can go dehydrate them and have them ready for whenever I need them. So I take advantage of what I can take advantage of. That's so smart. And people, yeah, that's inspiring for sure. Um, okay. So you've, you've touched on it a little bit, but could you give like a play by play of how to make a powder? Okay. I know there's probably different, a little bit different methods, but just like overall in general, you, you, uh, you have a choice. You can puree, uh, the thing that you want to powder because that will make the drying process faster for a lot of things. So, um, let's see, like if you take the raspberry and blueberry, um, raspberry, blueberries, you know, those kind of denser fruits that take a long time to dry. If you puree them first, just get the sauce, just run it through your blender, puree it. You can run it through a sieve, um, at that point to remove any seeds, put the puree in a dehydrator, dry it. You can store it as leather. So just use those leather pieces, put them in your storage container like you normally would, uh, and then powder them as you need them. Because typically powders don't last as long as solids do. And the more you process something, the less of a shelf life it has. Mm. So you would, uh, you would powder those things for a month or three months, like for a shorter time period, and then save the solids to, to store for long-term if you, if that's how you work. Um, okay. But then uh, once you've dried it, then you run it through a blender. Um, if you happen to have a high-speed blender that has a dry uh, blender blade, that works the best, but you can use a coffee grinder. You can use a bullet blender, like a Nutribullet, or uh, like I use, I use a Ninja blender, uh, a bullet blender. Um, those work just as well. So you would blend it and then you would remove the, you would like run it through a little uh, a fine mesh um, strainer. And because the first time you go through it, you're going to have some bigger solids left and you just yeah. run those through again, you know, until you get it to the texture that you want to get it to, you put it in a jar. It helps to have a moisture absorber because powders, especially fruit powders, because of all the sugar tend to uh, absorb sugar more, I mean, absorb moisture more and can clump. So as long as you put the moisture absorber in there, that helps to stop the clumping. Um, it doesn't stop it, but it helps. Um, but I tend to be lazy and don't like the extra dishes. So I just put, put things in whole, I mean, like I chop them up or slice them up, get them in small pieces, dry them as that, store them as that, and then powder them from the whole that whole piece versus doing a leather. Because I tend not to like to do leathers because that's just me. But it also meant that I had to dirty up more dishes in the front end uh, to do it. So I just, I just, uh, run through a strainer at the end to remove any seeds that I have to. And the same, it's basically the same thing for, for vegetables. I mean, you just, uh, if it needs to be blanched ahead of time, you do it, you prep it for the size. You want to get smaller sizes. It dries faster. You, uh, dry it till, till it's really dry and then you powder it. And, uh, with some powders, um, you have less of an issue with clumping. Um, like most vegetables, they don't have as much, they don't have as high of a sugar, natural sugar content. So you don't have to worry about the clumping in those as much as you do for onions and garlic and uh, um, most fruits um, and things like that that you have to worry about the clumping a little more. Okay. Um, so the seeds would have to come out on it sounds like either method, whether you're chopping fine or you're purring first, you would run either the powder with a ladder. I feel like I'm saying this in a confusing way. No, <laughs> powder yeah, if, or if, the puree through a sieve. To if remove. it's a, if it's a seed, that's a problem. Okay. Um, like for me, most seeds grind down and they're not an issue because depending on the thing for uh, raspberries and blackberries, those seeds are pretty hard and they yeah. don't really grind down very well. And so, especially if you have an issue with those things, like taking in seeds, that's bad for your intestinal tract. Um, you would want to strain those seeds out. And we do because it's a texture thing, because okay. you just really can't get those ground unless you have, you know, you're blessed with the Vitamix with that kind of thing. Vitamixes can probably get it down enough that it doesn't matter, but right. most of us don't have the really super high speed blenders. So yeah. strain it out and then you can get those seeds out. With no problem. Got it. Would tomato seeds be okay? Tomato seeds are or fine. They, 
They're fine. They'll come. They'll go yeah. down. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. And what about the moisture absorber? Where would you? What is that? And where would you get those? Okay. They moisture absorbers are based. It's called a moisture absorber. It's called Despin Pack, or it's called a silicon silicon pack. Um, mm-hmm. Basically, it is a uh, a gel little bubble that comes in a in a piece of cloth um, that absorbs moisture from a container. So you would use that in a container that you are in and out of all the time. So if you're, I use it for my dehydrated products a lot because those that I am in and out of all the time, I should say, not the ones that have that for long-term storage because you're not getting in and out of that jar. So what it does is it helps that when you open your jar, especially if you're in a higher humidity area, that as you open a jar, that new air that's introduced into your jar has moisture too. That's just been now, you've captured that moisture. So the absorber takes the moisture out of the air that's in the jar to help it not go into your food. So it's really helpful for things that are very prone to absorbing moisture like fruits um, because of the sugars that are hygroscopic. I think I said that correctly. I always have a problem with that word Um, because those things like to just suck up moisture. So that's why you would use an absorber in that jar to help stop that moisture from going into your food. Now, what you don't use it for is to condition your food Um, so you wouldn't say, I'm not going to dry my food enough because the moisture absorber will take care of that because that's not what it's meant to do. It's meant to take care of the extra that would come in. You dry your food properly and then you store it. And then you use the moisture absorber as a tool on top, not to take out that last little bit of, of, uh, moisture. That makes sense. Okay. I could see, I could see me doing that. Uh, (laughs) No, don't do that. No. (laughs) Okay. This episode is brought to you by Redmond's Real Salt, the number one salt I use in all of my homestead cooking, canning, and fermentation. I've learned over the years that not all salt is created equal, and having the good stuff really does make a difference in your culinary adventures, especially when it comes to canning or fermentation. If you use the general run-of-the-mill grocery store salt with its iodine and its sugars and its additives, it can cause your canned or fermented foods to have off flavors, textures, and colorations. So it really does make a difference to get the good stuff. Redmond's is the only salt mined in the good old US of A, and I love that they use sustainable practices in their mining, and it contains 60 plus trace minerals that not only make it good for you, but it actually tastes better too. Since I can't mine salt here on our homestead, obviously, I like to buy salt in bulk because that saves me some cash and it never goes bad. I actually bought a 25 pound bag of Redmond salt last summer and I'm still using it. I just keep it in a bucket down in my basement pantry and it's still going strong. Right now, Redmond's is offering 15% off your entire order just for my podcast listeners. Head on over to theprairiehomestead.com slash salt and use the code homestead to snag your discount. Now, back to our episode. Okay, so when you are blending in your blender, what texture, are we looking for like a super fine powder, like powdered sugar? Or are we looking more like small granules? Is there a ballpark rule of thumb here? It's a personal thing. Okay. So it depends on how fine you want it to be. Some things powder up really fine, really fast, and it's no problem. Some things take a couple of going, you know, a couple of rounds of going through to get it powdered down enough for your personal choice. Depends on how you want to use it in the end. If you're looking to uh, like add to some, uh, like to an icing or frosting for a cake and you want to flavor it and color it, you would want to have it really super fine because what you've got is fiber. When you're, uh, when you're powdering things down, they're actual, it's the actual fiber you're powdering down. You're not making it to where it's a dissolvable thing. You're adding it in as fiber. So if you don't want that grit, you want it as fine as you can possibly get it for doing things that the texture would matter. Now for adding to any kind of meal, it doesn't matter. I mean, because you're going into something that's going to have some time to cook up. Uh, even if you have some bigger chunks in it, those bigger chunks don't really matter. Um, but if you're looking for adding to uh, a dough, to any kind of uh, frosting or or, um, or adding to something that the texture matters a lot, you want to grind it down as much as you possibly can to get a really fine texture. Um, for me, things like um, 
raspberries and blackberries. I'm using them as an example because they're the they're the one fruit that I always think of because I love the powder so much. I do a lot of it because I added a lot. Um, those grind down pretty fine because it's such a papery leftover mm-hmm. uh, when you've dehydrated it. You just have to, you know, when you strain it and get the seeds out, that takes out most of that texture. So, but things that um, like maybe um, a citrus that you're, if you're doing a whole citrus slice, you've got the pith, you've got the peel, you've got the flesh, you've got that membrane. So that might take you a while to get that ground down pretty fine because you've got three different textures within that fruit. So you would do the whole, like you would grind up the whole thing. I do. I do the whole thing. I do the whole thing. As long as I don't have a pith that's, you know, like more than a quarter inch of it. If it's got a super thick pith, I will just pop the flesh out and then toss the the pith and the the peel into the compost and just use the flesh. And then if you, I mean, there are just so many ways you can do just powder that is just the flesh versus uh, doing the entire thing because that is a finer, more... Um, nuance flavor versus doing the whole thing. Sure. Okay. And I'm sure that would be like lemon zest. Like you use it in some of those applications potentially. Sure. Uh, You could use it to replace lemon zest, except when you have, like if you're really wanting fresh lemon zest for really fresh flavor, I wouldn't use a dehydrated uh, zest whole. I would use, I would actually just draw, I would have dried zest on hand all the just time to, for that kind okay, of thing. Okay, got it. Yeah. Yeah, that makes just sense. Just the zest, right. Just the zest, yes, yes. Because it's considerably different flavors. There sure. is a different flavor. And yeah. so, but if you're looking at like putting it, um, like you're wanting to add zest into, uh, maybe like you're going to do lime zest into a picante kind of application that you, or a, that you're wanting to do fresh. Mm-hmm. I would tend, if it was me, I have lemon uh, lime zest that I just like do peels of and chop it up and then do that as just, I just air dry that. Uh, and then that keeps separately. And then as it's going into a fresh sauce, uh, it will rehydrate from the sauce juices. And so it just adds that if I, I can put uh, lime powder into it and it gives it a lime flavor, but it's not the same as having that fresher zest flavor. I get, there's just a difference. And so it just, it depends on how you're going to use in the end. So you have to think ahead that way and how you plan on using it. And then know that there are those things that you might want to keep a zest only versus doing the whole citrus. So for me, the whole citrus is more useful because I can just put that flavor into anything like into, you know, salad dressing. It can go in there just as the whole zest. As long as you don't have that really thick pith, then you're good. You still get that flavor. Okay. Can you do this without a dehydrator machine? You can do it in an oven. Uh, and if you happen to be in a climate where you can create like solar, like a solar dehydrator in your backyard, um, you can definitely dehydrate with solar. Um, I don't because we live in an environment that we get so much humidity so much of the year. Um, I'm in Texas, but I'm in East Texas versus West Texas in the desert. I'm in, I'm in the Eastern part. So our humidity is much higher through most of the year. Uh, even when it's hot, it's it can be really humid in the mornings and the evenings. So I don't dehydrate outside because it's not worth it to me. But you can use your oven. Uh, the, the problem with an oven, there's not, it's not a problem. It's a it's thing to know that so that when you do it, you can overcome it. Uh, it can tie up your oven for much longer than you may have available to use your oven for. And it's more expensive to run an oven to dehydrate in the long run than it is a dehydrator. So the, up co- the upfront cost for dehydrator can go from 500 to, I mean, from $50 to $500, depending on what kind of machine you can get. But you can get a dehydrator for less than $100 really easily that works really well. Um, And it won't tie up your oven, it won't heat up your kitchen, and it won't run your electric bill up as much as running your oven. Um, So if you're really invested in doing dehydrating, I would recommend having a dedicated tool for it. But yes, you can easily do this in your oven. Uh, The only thing I do recommend is that when you're using an oven, you crack that door open, to allow some airflow to let the moisture escape. You can like put a, like a, a silicone spoon or wooden spoon in the door to help not let it close. The only thing is this, if you have small children or if you have cho- uh, people with mobility issues in your home, be very careful because it's hot and you don't want them to get hurt. Yeah, that's a, yeah, good, good idea with a spoon and just to get that airflow. Yeah, because the airflow is important. Yeah, and yeah. if like some people will actually attach like a little portable uh, personal fan, like it has the clamp on it, they'll attach it to like the counter right outside the fan at the oven door. And as they and as it blows, it helps move that air out faster, especially if they don't have a a, fan, a convection oven 
that runs, if the door is open, it may stop running that fan. That can help airflow even more, which helps a more efficient dry time, uh, but it's not necessary. That's just one of those things. If you happen to think about it, if you happen to have access to it, then you can do that. But just having the door propped is enough to get some airflow uh, because most ovens don't have a fan that uh, will move air out. I mean, you have a vent. If you have happen to have a vent in your house, you can do that. Uh, and that will help, but uh, having that door cracked, it also lowers the temperature so that you're not baking things. You're actually getting more to a dry phase instead of just a baking phase. Cause that's what I was thinking. I mean, I have a dehydrator, but I think my oven only goes to 200. Right. That's right. about average now. Yeah. 170 used to be so, but even at 170, um, you're losing a lot more nutrients then. So you want to try to lower it if you can, but if you can't, you're still, you're still drying. You're still putting yeah. away. It's, it's better than nothing. At least, you know, I feel like people can try it with the oven. Right. And yeah. I do think a dehydrator is a great investment if you plan to go that route. Yeah, it makes it a is. lot of sense. And they're do really affordable, a- but yeah. uh, you know, depending on where, how much, space you have and what kind of needs you think you have. I mean, less than a hundred dollars. And if you f- go on Facebook marketplace right now, you're bound to find tons of people trying to get rid of theirs from last year, which is sad, but a boon for you. Uh, after the uh, dehydrating just kind of blasted last year because people had all this food that they were trying to get and then not knowing what to do with it. All of a sudden, everyone learned how to dehydrate. But then as happens with a lot of like those kind of kitchen gadgets, phases uh, a lot of people went oh that's too much trouble I don't want to bother food's back I don't need it and and, are, and now getting rid of theirs so yeah. marketplace we saw the same thing with canners I mean not that yeah. I don't know if people are offloading canners like they are dehydrators but there was like everything was sold out grain mills dehydrators mm-hmm. everything yeah so um gotta love the the pendulum yeah. swings <laughs> <laughs> I hate that they're giving them up but it's a boon for those who want it do you have Excalibur? What what brand do you have? I use, uh, I have three right now. I have a Nesco uh, stackable round one. It's just the, the, uh, the uh, 75. It's just a plain round one. Um, I have a Kasori uh, cabinet style, which is a stainless steel um, cabinet. Um, and I have an Excalibur nine tray. So okay. uh, my preference, um, if you're talking about volume, is an Excalibur. My preference of using is the Kasori. I have been so impressed with this thing. It's smaller, it's cheaper, um, and it's so much quieter. It's so yeah. quiet, we don't notice, which with the Excalibur, it's loud. It, it is, is loud. loud, yeah. It is loud. I have a, I have an Excalibur, and I just got one. I don't, I've not heard of the Kasori, but it's, it, this one's from Tribest, and it's, I think it sounds similar, smaller, mm-hmm. and it has stainless steel, mm-hmm. um, which I like the stainless steel, but like you said, for quantity, the Excalibur makes a lot of sense. It's bigger. Right. And if I had the room in a space in our house, which I don't because we have a, a smaller house and we have a great room, it's not even a great room. It's a one room, living room, kitchen thing. It's not great mm-hmm. at all. Uh, they just built these where it was just one space. Um, if I didn't have that and I had the space to put it, I would, I would in a heartbeat go buy Cabela's 160 liter, the 24 tray machine. Because there are days when, uh, you know, that I'm just trying to cycle through things so fast. And uh, I would love to have one of those. And one day that will be mine. Uh, It will be a sad day because that means that my children will no longer live at home. But one day, (laughs) and I may not need to dehydrate so much if they're not here. But uh, one day I will have one. But for now, I just uh, cycle through one of those three, depending on what I'm needing to do. Sure, sure. So when you leave kids, I'm getting the dehydrator. It's going. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, sorry to see you go, but also I'm very excited. Yes, yes. <laughs> I will have a space yeah. dedicated for me to be able to do this stuff. Yes. And <laughs> um, I love it. So speaking of that, like I was curious, um, yield ratios. I know this is this is like probably depends is the answer, but like let's say you fill your um, Excalibur with you fill every tray with the the dry you know the food roughly like what can people expect to get let's say how, how big of a jar or how many cups of powder would they get uh, that's that's hard because I've never done yeah. it like from a full Excalibur to, okay. to powder um and it will depend on the food because you have some food that's just yeah. thin like greens and by the time you get down to I mean, you can have an Excalibur full of uh greens and you can get like a quarter it looks like it's maybe a quarter of a jar of powder okay but because it's so concentrated yeah. You can't think of, I had all this and now I'm down to just this tiny little bit. Um, a good ratio about how it works is a cup of fresh mm-hmm. is about a third to a quarter cup of dry okay. is about a tablespoon of powder. That's pretty general because it does matter about the kind of food that you have, how dense it was, um, like how you cut it up. So your cup of fresh 
you know, it could be, you know, a mounding cup of greens versus, you know, a few chopped things. Um, but that's a good general ratio of knowing about what you'll get and how to use it at the end, because that's the thing. It's like, you can make powder easily, but it's how to use it at the end. So you look at about a tablespoon of powder equals about a cup of fresh. So then you just make adjustments to that. You have to adjust for flavor because like with greens, uh, putting into eggs, a tablespoon might be a bit much depending on how many eggs you make because things, uh, green powder is a generic green flavor. There's no, unless you put it like, again, if you were to put a ton of broccoli leaves in it, it would taste more like broccoli because they're a stronger flavor. But when you do greens and you just mix them all in, it's a pretty just generic green flavor. So there's a point where the tipping scale is you're going to get green eggs when you start adding it in because it's just going to make it a little green. But then you yeah. start getting that that uh, flavor that starts to inch in of these eggs sort of taste green. So that's when you just you start learning how to just add a little bit at a time and just increase it. So you get to the point where you go, oh, I taste those now. We'll back off a little bit next time. Sure. So for our family, it's probably about for a for a dozen eggs. I usually make it a dozen eggs at a time. That way we've got a little leftover for the next day or so. And um, I will add about three quarters of a tablespoon of green powder to it. And I can add two tablespoons of vegetable powder and you don't notice that at all. But the green powder, we're, we're at about three quarters of a, of a tablespoon to about a dozen eggs before you start noticing that, that green, green, yeah, the grassy, yeah, the grassy way. Yeah. That's a good, that's a good way. Grassy. Okay. That's impressively concentrated. Like that's, yeah. So you might be at first glance, you know, be disappointed. You're like, I got this tiny bit of powder, but like, it's all the nutrients packed into that tiny bit of powder. Right. And things like celery, when you, when you make celery powder, that's one of those other ones. That's just like when you dehydrate celery, because it's so much water, um, you get these little chunks of celery out of these, you know, two or three big heads of it. You just get a little bit. And then when you powder that down even more, it can be really depressing for people who just, or disappointing. That's a better word. Disappointing for those who go, I just had all this and now it's all that's left, but it's so concentrated. You use so little of it that it it's, it works out the same. Sure. Yeah. And it's great for, if you don't have a lot of storage space, cause I get so yes. many people saying, I want a can, but I have one tiny closet in my apartment. And I'm like, well, that's, I mean, eh, kind of tough, but this is perfect. <laughs> this is the way <laughs> to do it. Yeah. yeah. Because you can pack in, um, like I keep a large jar of greens going all the time and I probably can get, uh, let me think, probably one, two, three, four Excalibur loads. Like we're talking like all nine, well, not nine trays. Cause it's hard to get nine trays of greens going at once, uh, unless you put mesh on top, slide it in and it helps in. smush it in, yeah. or you can blanch it, uh, or use frozen that's smaller. So you can fit it in better, but I just go fresh. I just throw it on the trays after I wash it. Um, but if I go f- for nine full trays, I can probably get four of them. Don't even make up a quart jar by the mm. time it's powdered. Okay. So I mean, you can pack a lot of greens into a jar yeah. uh, over time yeah. easily. Okay. Things work. I mean, you can, um, for those who aren't growing, but are thinking about their pantry space and, and cans, I wouldn't dehydrate all my vegetables because not every vegetable comes back with a great quality when you rehydrate it, especially not for a side dish on its own. Most yeah. everything will just go into a super stew just fine. Um, but, um, but there are those kind of vegetables that you can dehydrate and just take up so much less space. So if your family loves corn, and loves to eat it in everything, um, you can take those, like, if you happen to buy the number 10 cans of corn for your family, for a large family, that takes up a ton of space. Mm-hmm. Dehydrate it all, and you can put it in such a smaller space, and then turn around and just use it later, and you've saved so much room for other things that you can't preserve well, or that uh, that need more, if you need more canning space, that's how I would do it, yeah. Yeah, okay, that's super smart. To even, yeah, I didn't ever think of drying store-bought cans stuff. Yeah. I don't do it often with many vegetables because I don't always like, like for me, uh, dehydrated canned green beans are not worth doing. I mean, they're just not worth doing. Um, but, uh, but for me, tomato paste, because I buy it once a year, 
I powder it and I've got it for a whole year. I don't have to mess with the cans, especially like for those of us who uh, buy the small cans and you take one tablespoon out of it and then you've got this three quarters of a can left and you put it in your freezer and then you've totally forgotten about it and it you find it like two years later in the back as it's gotten shoved further and further back. Um, I just go ahead and just dry it all at once and I'm done for the year. And so I have one jar about this big compared to 15 or 20 cans that I have to try to store. So um, there are things that work really, really well this way. And that saves a ton of space on my end for things yeah. that I can't preserve myself or that, that don't uh, don't can well or don't be heavy at all. So I know you mentioned that they the powders don't store as long as just like chunks of dehydrated right. fruits or vegetables. Like what are we looking at shelf life-wise? And do you store them on in like your pantry or do you put them in the freezer? Okay, you can extend your time in the freezer if you want to, because as with everything, throwing it in the freezer can extend the shelf life. Generally, powders last six to nine months, just like with your spices, so that because you've exposed so much more of the surface area, so air, light, moisture, whatever, they just degrade faster and lose their flavor faster, and they may lose their color over time. So I look at, for me, I do six months as my out. So I, I dehydrate, I mean, I powder enough that for the next six months, that's all I'll need. And then I store the solids for anything else. There are some that I do for less time, like onion powder and garlic powder. They are more definitely for a uh, shorter term, what I'm going to use in the next month or two because of the clumping issue with those, because they may, even the stuff that you buy from the store, mm-hmm. if you keep it right over your stove and you're using all the time, you see that it clumps a lot. Um, the thing I do for those is I add arrowroot powder. To them. I don't use cornstarch. I use okay. arrowroot and it will help stop that clumping. Um, so that's what I'll do for those. But for the most part, you're looking at like when you test herbs and spices and you um, to see if they're still good. And if you cannot identify it when you open the jar or when you like break it up in your hands and you still can't identify what that smell is, you've, it's not not bad. It's just not as good. So you have to use more. Um, that's kind of the same way that the powders work. So I give myself about that nine months out is, is the longest that I would ever, but I keep mine at six months and less, um, for dehydrated foods. Um, the safe, uh, conservative way to say it is that you can get a year to 18 months off of dehydrated food before you start losing taste and texture and things. Tomatoes, probably only about a year because just like with canned, they tend to go uh, lose their their texture and flavor um, faster, but you can probably get much longer out of dehydrated foods than that eighteen months if you store it well, if you dried it properly, if you conditioned it, if you stored it well, you'll get longer out of most of them. But the conservative thing is to think about you're storing for a year, year and a half, two years for for that, and know that just rotate through it and you're fine. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Amazing. Um, okay. As we wrap up here, this time went super fast. (laughs) fast. Um, I'm just like, my brain is like, what, what can I go make a powder of right now? (laughs) Like, what do I have? (laughs) Um, what, any other last tips or things I missed in this conversation that you'd like to share with anyone listening? Um, do it, just go try it. I mean, that's the biggest thing. Everybody is is so scared of trying it because they're afraid that they're going to make their family sick, that they're going to mess something up that it's not going to work. And those things to me, um, I always try to say that if you're just learning, those things are not wastes because you're developing a new way of preserving food that in the beginning, yeah, it may not work because you've got to finesse what you're, what you're doing and need a little extra time to figure out that process and do it again. Uh, It's never, ever, ever a waste to mess up. Um, So just get out there and do it. Just Throw something like the next time that you get strawberries, slice them up, throw them in your oven on a cookie sheet. If you can put them on a cooling rack on some parchment paper on top of a cookie sheet, that's the best way to do it. That way you don't have that hot metal that they're sitting on. Uh, throw them in at the lowest temperature that your that your oven goes in and dry them until that when you pull them out, let them cool and they crack. That's a dry strawberry. That's a good dry strawberry. And then just play with it. Just see what happens with it. And then if you powder them, put it in your oatmeal or your yogurt the next day. Like in some plain yogurt, strawberry powder going in that is fabulous. That's how I can uh, eat yogurt because I don't like yogurt, but I force myself to eat it. Uh, That's how I can do it because it's like a little extra flavor to it to make it more palatable to me. And it's just really, really good. Great. 
Goodbye, and the last Go thing, the last thing, sorry. The thing about fruit powders that people uh, also often get wrong, the carbs are the same in powder form and fresh. You don't lose carbs. So for people who that matters to, you have to remember that carb count. So you don't lose the sugars. You're only losing the water. So a tablespoon of strawberry powder is the same carb count as a good hefty cup of fresh strawberries. So that's something to always remember. That is good. I was just like, hey, these are calorie free because they're powders. No, they're not. <laughs> no, no, they're not. Nope. Uh-uh. <laughs> so, yeah, good, good point. I didn't even think of that, yeah. but that makes sense. You know, you're just losing water. Right. You're not losing. Okay, good. Good to know. All right. Where can folks find you? And I know you have a book and you, you have a blog and a YouTube channel. Where can they find you to connect with you and all the amazing content you create? Um, the Purposeful Pantry. So I'm that on YouTube, on Instagram, on Pinterest, mypurposefulpantry.com. No, try that again. The Purposeful Pantry. Okay. Um, I have to remember that. Uh, the Purposeful Pantry. Um, and that's, you can find me anywhere under that awesome. name. Fabulous. So everybody go check out Darcy. Thank you so much, Darcy. This was so good. <laughs> so good. <laughs> Thanks for having me, Jill. Yeah, this is fabulous. So I appreciate your time. Thanks for listening along, my friend. I hope you enjoyed that episode and got as much out of it as I did. And hey, if you're feeling inspired to start preserving more food after listening to all these amazing interviews on the podcast this season. My Canning Made Easy program is one of the very best places to start. I created this course several years ago when I realized that a ton of people were getting stuck with canning processes and canning safety methods because there's just so much information online and it can feel super overwhelming. And I wanted to just make this process simple because canning does not have to be complicated. It doesn't have to be scary or uncertain. It can be something you do just while you're in the kitchen working on other things sometimes. It doesn't have to be an ordeal. And so I created this program of videos, ebooks, and charts that has since allowed thousands of you to learn how to can without the stress. And this year, I'm actually adding something extra special to the program. I'm going to be sending anyone who joins the program a box, an actual physical box from my homestead to yours of some of my favorite canning accessories. I'm going to be throwing in a couple of my favorite reusable canning lids, you know, so the canning lid shortage just doesn't have to be a concern. I'll send you a sample of my favorite sea salt that I use for all of my preserving a flip top to convert your mason jar into all sorts of handy pantry storage. And probably my favorite part of all is my very much requested old fashioned on purpose kitchen towel. You may have seen it hanging in my kitchen in some videos or photos. It has the old fashioned on purpose manifesto on it. A ton of people have messaged me after seeing photos and said, Jill, where do I get the towel? And we finally got a batch of them printed up we'll be tucking that into your little goodie box whenever you join the course. So to check out the course, all that's offered and see what's in my little box that I'll be sending you, just head on over to learnhowtocan.com to have a look.